Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to see everybody who's able to gather today and the visitors who are with us as well. Uh, Neil, it's great to see you and your family, especially with uh, the time that you guys have with us still. Um, just really appreciate just being able to worship together and renew and rejuvenate our minds. You know, just the Bible study this morning in Ephesians and just having the opportunity to, to put back into our minds like that song that we sang, Soldiers of Christ Arise. You know, our sense of duty, the sense of blessedness in our duty, the sense of joy in the, in the deliverance we've received, the reconciliation we have with God, the Lord's Supper, and remembering how we've been redeemed and the nature of the outpouring of God's grace in our lives. And, you know, you just imagine more and more seeing the intention of God when he designed the church and even the local assembling to be handled in a way that accomplishes a very specific purpose and how it motivates and humbles and how it builds awe. Um, and one of the ways that we're called to be motivated um, by our fellowship is, is evangelism. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, uh, good verse to have memorized. Um, it's where Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says that uh, he's with us always, even into the end of the age. And so Jesus's final commission, often it's called the Great Commission in uh, just our, our way of thinking about that, that passage. His final commission was he was calling us to evangelize. And evangelism is really uh, a particularly tricky command. Uh, it's, it's, it's a command that when uh, I notice I try to obey, um, I'm confronted with self-doubt. Um, con- I'm confronted with how little I trust God. I'm confronted with how little I care about souls. I'm confronted with uh, fear of people. And there's just all of these very difficult things that are involved with the work of evangelism. And obviously, you're going to be dealing with a lot of resistance, a lot of pressure to stop and be quiet. So evangelism is kind of a tricky thing. And I think in the passage we'll look at is Jesus understands how tricky evangelism can be. Let's, let's go to Matthew chapter 9, 35 Uh, through 38. This is going to be the anchoring point for our our study this morning. Um, And then we'll talk about some simple principles that we're going to look at to summarize, I think, the nature of our struggles and the principles of our struggles in evangelism. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, 35 through 38. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So there's, there's three things that I think we see here that we're going to see in the following chapter. We're going to branch off of Jesus' statements here and see how he was training his disciples to think similarly in chapter 10. But we're going to be focusing on three principles as categories that summarize the reasons why we struggle with evangelism. Um, the first one is conviction. You see conviction in Jesus' statement. For one, in verse 35, Jesus is teaching everywhere, so that it, it pretty well shows how convicted he was. But in verse 36, you notice how he saw the people. Not just that he had compassion on them being distressed and dispirited, but he could see that they were separated from God. 
These were sheep who did not have a shepherd. They were lost people. And that convicted Jesus. And conviction is really just to have a full persuasion. You're convinced of a truth that moves you and motivates you to something. Oftentimes people are convicted because of some great cause, right? Then there's compassion. And you see that very clearly in verse 36. It says he felt compassion. But again, how he viewed people. He saw them in a certain way that, again, it motivated him to action, to a very specific kind of action. He wanted to relieve the burden that he perceived was heavy on the people. And that greatest burden was they lacked a shepherd. They lacked guidance and leadership from God. They weren't connected. And then finally, consideration. You see that in verse 37 and 38. Consideration is really just being thoughtful, um, thinking about, okay, well, how do we do this, right? So conviction is I'm persuaded that there is a problem. You know, I see that there is something going on that it, it bothers me. And so something has to change. And compassion, looking at that problem with love, recognizing that God equips us by his love to take action. We can sympathize and empathize and relate to the people who are lost around us. But then consideration is, how do, we, how do we invest ourselves into the craft of reaching people? How can we engage ourselves in conversation and the people around us? And before we go through this, where do you see that you struggle the most, right? Like when you think about yourself in evangelism, you might be like me and, and maybe you can think about other times where you are maybe more passionate in evangelism. Maybe it's not something that you're even doing at all right now. That may be because of fear. It may be because of just having maybe too small a view of what evangelism is. So maybe consideration might be your problem. You're convicted, you feel compassion, but you don't know what to do. But if you're like me, really, your biggest problem is really that you're just not very convicted. And because you're not very convicted, you just, you don't care. And oftentimes, if I'm really being honest with the condition of my heart and why I'm not engaging as much as I could or I'm not thoughtful enough in evangelism. It's I don't care because I'm just not very convicted, right? So I think the first two qualities really are, are just the most important. And we're going to start by looking at conviction. Turn uh, kind of far into chapter 10 and the interaction with his disciples here. Jesus sends out his 12 closest disciples who would become the apostles. And he sends them out to go and imitate exactly what he had been doing. He sends them out to teach and preach about the kingdom, to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, even raise the dead and cast out demons. And in verse 26 through 39, I, th I think he really gets to the heart of what should be motivating them. And that's where I really want to begin is how do we get to the heart of, of how we can be motivated to begin to participate and want to participate in this work despite the struggles that are involved in it. So 26 through 39, I'll read this. Therefore, do not fear them. And he's talking about people who maligned him and who had maligned his disciples. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are, you not, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. 
But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. First thing about this that I think is an important principle to keep in mind is how evangelism in many unique ways pushes us to have reliance on God's care and compassion for us first. So notice Jesus understands that talking about him to people, being open about our faith, it, the reality is it does cause us to fear and to need his help. Look in verse 26. He says, therefore, do not fear them. Verse 28, do not fear those. And verse 31, so do not fear. You get the idea that Jesus understands the difficulty of having fear in the work of evangelism, right? So because Jesus can empathize, he equips us he equips us with methods and with principles to overcome this fear. A couple more principal things here. Worldly fear will cause us to act on the desire to save ourselves and will be focused on the present. Godly fear causes us to act on the desire to save others and it's a focus on the future. So maybe a way to think about this. Oftentimes when I'm somewhere and I'm like in a coffee shop reading my Bible, here's what happens a lot of times. I'll be sitting at a table reading my Bible, and like, if you're not sure about what a coffee shop is like, you're basically at a table, and people are in tables all around you, just kind of sitting around doing schoolwork, and sometimes people are even reading their Bibles in these coffee shops. Sometimes I'll literally be sitting there with my Bible open, and I'll just be staring at somebody. And in my mind, I'll be thinking, talk to that person. I should talk to that person and maybe ask them a question about the Bible, or, you know, find some way to maybe like, you know, ask them if they want to have a Bible study, and I'll just be sitting there like staring at them while this is all happening in my mind, and eventually I'll talk myself out of it a lot of times. I'll think like, ah, you know, I don't, I don't want to interrupt their day. You know, oh, they, they've got their headphones in. Whew, okay, well, they don't, want to, they don't want to have their music interrupted or whatever. And so I'll begin just kind of like rationalizing, not taking the risk, but ultimately, ultimately that's a worldly fear is really what that is. And all those ways of rationalizing, I can try to justify that, but the reality is, really, I'm trying to protect my own comfort, and I'm focused more on the present, whereas godly fear, look at verse uh, 28, godly fear focuses on God's relationship to men and the future of someone's soul. Godly fear cultivates our convictions, it deepens our convictions, Notice how much Jesus focuses on judgment here. Verse 26, when he's talking about things later being made known, he's ultimately talking about judgment, that there's going to come a day when people are going to be exposed when they stand before God, and it's inevitable. So he's saying there's nothing people are trying to conceal that is not eventually going to be made known. It's absolutely inevitable because there is certainly a judgment where people will stand before God. In verse 28, obviously, he's emphasizing judgment, that God has the capability to destroy body and soul in hell. And in verse 32 and 33, he again emphasizes judgment. Again, whoever confesses me before men, I'll confess him before my Father who is in heaven, right? 
Judgment is one of the most powerful initiating motivations for evangelism. I want you to think, like, why is it so important to focus on the future destiny of people's soul and judgment? Most of the people that I've seen um, as very passionate about evangelism are actually people who think the most about God's judgment. Uh, I've told you before about this man named Terry. Um, whenever I talk about evangelism, I just I love talking about Terry. He was someone who thought about God's judgment all the time, right? And so Terry would go door knocking every week without fail, multiple times a week. And I'm, I'm not saying that we all need to go door knocking. It's just what, what he happened to do um, because of his convictions. But he thought a lot about the fact that people were going to stand before God. And so he would, he would go out to people in his community and he would take the risk of knocking on people's doors and trying to initiate conversations with strangers because he recognized that he had good news for people who would stand before God. That he had literally the key thing that was going to justify or condemn somebody based on how they respond to the gospel. And he would just do this incessantly. I've never met anyone who is so incessant and so consistent with door knocking as Terry, but it's because he was focused on judgment. And Terry invited me to go door knocking with him um, pretty regularly. And I'll tell you, like conviction like that is very contagious. The most passionate I've ever been in evangelism easily, by far, was when I would spend that time with Terry. Because he would talk about God's judgment with me. He would talk about his concern for souls with me. And when we would go door knocking, we weren't just doing it as a work to do out of mere obligation to God's command. Terry was so genuine in doing this that he would constantly remind us of the reason why we were doing what we were doing. And so the conversation in the midst of the work was putting in my mind God's judgment. And again, it was very contagious when I would spend time with Terry. 2 Corinthians 5, um, I taught through that chapter related to evangelism quite some time ago. And if you remember, Paul talked about in the middle of chapter 5 how everybody is going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And so he gives a therefore statement. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Other people I've heard who are very passionate about evangelism, they'll, they'll stand in an area, you know, whether it's their work or at school or just in some public place, and they'll mention that they'll think to themselves, everybody here is potentially going to hell. And I'm somebody that God sees is right here in the middle of all of this. And I can say something. I can do something, right? And so they're having a view of, of thinking about what's the future of the people around me. Let me learn to act on that fear. Another thing that I think Jesus says to address the fear that we have of people is verse 30 and 31. Love also deepens our conviction, right? First John 4:18, such an important statement. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I think this is an easy statement to misunderstand. It can be easy to think, well, this means that I have to love God perfectly, and until I have flawless love for God, I'm always going to have fear. In verse 31, it's that God's love for us is perfect. The more assurance I have that God loves me, the more boldness I can have to continue in the work. Because ultimately, Jesus isn't commanding us to evangelize with a sense of complete independence from him. Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians 5, says, working together with the Lord. Jesus in Matthew 28, something easy to overlook, he said, I am with you 
always, even to the end of the age. And so it's not that we have to say things perfectly. It's not that God is expecting us to have the flawless answer to everybody's question. God can be glorified in our weakest efforts that are done in sincere conviction and love, right? So we have to remember that God is seeking to be exalted through our weakness and not the display of some self-strength. Verse 31, the more I think about the fact that God is protecting me, that God will bless me, the more I can see that it's, it's not just that evangelism is a burden, but that there are blessings reserved specifically when I take the risk of talking to people about the gospel, even being rejected. So I just want to finish this section asking this question. What's your greatest fear in talking about Jesus to people? What's your greatest fear? And I want you to think about this. Another thing that used to really motivate me that I really need to get back to thinking more about, because like, side note, this lesson is for me as well. Like, I, I really need to get back into a different frame of mind with evangelism. You know, I've, I've really let myself get more distracted. I've listened to the voice in my head that, you know, tells me to save myself rather than take the risk of trying to risk things to, to help others. And a time when I was much more bold was a time when I would more vividly think about myself at the cross. So you'd imagine, like, bring your biggest fear about talking to people about Jesus, your biggest fear. Like, what you feel is your most legitimate reason for totally checking out of evangelism, or at least not being very passionate. I want you to imagine the crowd is shouting at Jesus. They're laughing. They're screaming. Jesus is on the cross, struggling to breathe. And you stand at the base of the cross. You say, hey, hey, Jesus, like, I see what you're doing, but uh, I'm scared that someone might reject me if I say something. And you imagine looking him in the eyes. Do you think that excuse has any legitimacy, right? And so I think with our convictions, it's not just God's judgment, but think about the cross, the perfect love that casts out fear. Think about the risks God has taken. And I think that leads us to have more compassion on people. And not just a sense of like almost passive care, but a more intensive sense of I want to take action. Because there is this need that people are not recognizing that I understand God can fulfill. Let's read verses 5 through 8 here before we look more specifically at these points. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, Cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. So notice 10 verse 6. We, we looked at initially Jesus had compassion on the people because he saw them in a certain way. Jesus saw them ultimately as sheep who didn't have a shepherd. Notice in verse 6, Jesus in his instruction was training them to see his disciples or to see the world the way that he saw it. This is one of the most important things about saturating our minds and our hearts with Jesus, that when we read our Bibles personally, when we come together as a church, that we're not just fulfilling things of ritualistic routine, but that God has designed the routine that we have to be deepening our understanding of Jesus' heart condition, right? Think about the condition of heart that was in the cross, the condition of heart that's reminded that we're being reminded of when we partake of the Lord's Supper. 
Jesus, his time with them, Jesus was expecting them to change their perspective to be more like his. Look at verse 24 and 25. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. Being close to Jesus means our perspective will change. We'll become more compassionate toward the people around us. We'll see people's needs more clearly and we'll have a more genuine interest in those needs. Jesus saw people as distressed and dispirited. He saw people as lost sheep. Jesus would in other places describe people as captives of Satan, people who were imprisoned in darkness in the realm and domain of Satan. Jesus saw people as helpless. That's reflected on in Romans chapter 5. While we were yet helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus saw people in urgent, dire need. And you can see the urgency in verse 38 of chapter 9. He says, pray that God send people out into his harvest. So come here and go. So Jesus isn't delaying time here. He's saying, you need to be praying about this, but you need to go ahead and get moving. And we need to get to work, right? So Jesus saw people in a position of extreme need. We need to learn to put our minds on what we've received. You know, there's a reason why in Ephesians, in Romans, there's so much time dedicated to these long descriptions of our salvation and descriptions of God's work and God's grace, things that don't seem to have some sense of immediate application, but there is an application in our heart. When we understand what we've received, we're more equipped to freely give it as well. We have to read our Bibles with the intention of seeing more clearly what God has granted us. We have to meditate on the glory of the truths of what we have. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul starts out the letter to the Ephesians. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have more than enough. God has not just adequately saved us. God has not just saved us to fulfill the minimum requirements of redeeming us. God has given us unfathomable riches of Christ. I want you to imagine that you are in captivity with like a group of people. Imagine even it's your family, right? That in captivity you bond together and eventually somebody actually comes to you and they, they, they bring you out. And imagine when you were in captivity, you didn't have hardly any food, You hardly had any clothing. Imagine you were covered in filth. You come out, you get washed up, they they equip you for work. You end up getting all of these great resources. Can you imagine coming out of that environment and your family is still in captivity and you think like, well, if I go back and tell them, they might not want to come out. So I'm just going to enjoy what I have and surely they'll figure it out, right? God has given us the stewardship of responsibility to embody and realize the characteristic of his compassion. There's, there's a song, you know, that, um, is it a song or is it an idea? No, the, the idea is that, like, um, God has no hands but our hands. Uh, that's not really true, necessarily. Um, God is going to work whether we do or not. But there is a sense where God has entrusted us with a serious responsibility Um, There's a reason why in verse 37 through 39, he he emphasizes the gravity of the work. So I want you to think about the idea of them being lost sheep. 
Have you ever seen somebody lose something very valuable to them that you had the ability to give back? Like, let's say somebody visited your house, they left their phone at your house, right? What do you do? Well, you probably try to contact them so they can get their phone back. Maybe if they're not that far away, maybe somebody else is in the car with them, you call them, right? Sometimes I find, like, ATM cards uh, on the ground um, just randomly outside. Just a couple days ago, I think it was, Eve and I, we were at a family dollar, um, and there was somebody's ATM card on the ground. Now, what do you do when you find something like that, right? I did, I put, gave it to the person at the register, by the way. I didn't keep it. Um, but generally, you understand that belongs to somebody, right? So when Jesus was saying lost sheep, he wasn't talking about some random group of people who had no right of ownership to anybody. What he was saying is, these are people who belong to God. These are God's people that he died for. So you just think about, again, this idea of standing somewhere and just thinking about the people you're seeing. People who seem satisfied with life, people who seem busy in their industry, people who are eating good things, drinking good things, and just enjoying themselves. That these people are enjoying all of those things while being completely separated from the one giving them all of those things. Folks, that matters, right? So in that, we need to just show more genuine interest in people for Jesus' sake. We talked about all humility uh, last Sunday. One of the greatest qualities of all humility that I think is very subtle, do you know how to spot if somebody is humble? They're showing genuine interest in you. Just a really easy way to know if someone's humble. They're genuinely interested in people that might not be able to just give them something readily in return, Maybe it's just a conversation that really has nothing to do with them. They're genuinely interested in you. The more we have genuine interest in people for Jesus' sake, genuine interest, the more opportunities we'll have to share the gospel with people and to relieve the burden of sin in people's lives by teaching them the truth. Last thing about compassion. Don't let resistance in your environment diminish your compassion. So later, Jesus will say, if you go to one place and they reject you, go to another place. He says, everybody's going to hate you in verse 22. Everybody is going to hate you. He's telling them that in advance to try to warn them, don't let this make you calloused, right? Don't let this change your attitude about God's mission. Do you remember when Jesus was dying on the cross in Luke's gospel, the first thing he said? When they hung him on the cross, he's recorded saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. When everybody everybody was giving Jesus every reason to withdraw his compassion. He pushed further to continue to emphasize the attitude he had toward them, an attitude of compassion. So don't let the environment at your work, the environment at your school, your family environment, whatever it is, don't let those environments change God's call to have you be compassionate to the people around you. And so with that, remember in verse 5, Jesus sent them out together. Jesus understands that we struggle with compassion. It's when we're working together that we can have more compassion and empathy on people when we're bringing others into the work. A danger of evangelism for me is I'm very tempted to just do it by myself, right? And I had Devin tell me over and over and over and over and over and over again as we'd go out. Devin would say, Bryant, don't do it by yourself. And we'd go to Bible studies. That would drain us both emotionally because of the conversation. And Devin would say, Brian, I'm glad you were not there on your own, right? So the world is designed 
to hinder God's heart from staying in our heart. We need to work together and we need to bring each other into the work and have a sense of purpose in our relationships toward that end. So consideration, uh, verse 9 through 16. Really, if, if somebody is convicted and they're compassionate, consideration, I think, in a lot of ways will take care of itself. But I think it's so important to establish clarity with how we can be considered about the work of evangelism. So let's start with verses 9 through 16 here. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. Whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust or shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So I put the ESV translation there. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We're called to have wisdom in the work. Um, So we need to learn, and again, this is a discipline that comes from the willingness to engage here and participate. We have to learn the discipline of being thoughtful about opportunities and people because they are everywhere. Because a part of being considerate is simply like being conscious of opportunities that are all around us and and trying to not overlook the opportunities that God is putting right in front of us. I think one thing um, that hurts consideration, though, that I think is, is good to talk about initially here is having wrong ideas about evangelism. I think we can have oftentimes very narrow views of evangelism that um, really aren't helpful or just misunderstandings that can be perpetuated very easily. Um, one, one quality of misunderstanding um, that I think is very dangerous is thinking that evangelism is something that it's actually not at all. So thinking evangelism means talking about things that I actually don't know. Or that evangelism means that I just have to be telling people about their sin all the time. Or evangelism means that I have to be showing everybody the errors of whatever church they're attending and the false practices or the the wrong doctrine. Um, A false view of evangelism can also be that uh, because, you know, evangelist sounds a lot like evangelism, that evangelist is a part of a church because he's the one doing the evangelism. And and that's that's just, that's actually not true. Um, evangelism is more than all of those things and we'll talk about um, right views of evangelism in a minute but can you see how all of those things really shut so many doors of opportunity that if I think that I have to be telling people about everything wrong going on in their lives in order to evangelize well I can convince myself people have already made up their minds people don't want to hear that Um, if I think the role of the evangelist, that's that responsibility of evangelism, well, now I don't even have to participate anymore when really it's people who are actively engaged in the world who are probably interacting with people a lot more than the evangelist really is anyway. Um, So we have to to be thoughtful about ways we can participate instead of focusing on ways we cannot participate. We talked about this in Romans 12 with contributing to the needs of the saints how it can be easy to exaggerate everything involved in God's command 
in a way that frightens me from participation. So like when I talked about contributing to the needs of the saints, one of the principles was I don't have to fulfill the need in order to contribute. Because I can easily think what I contribute is so small, it's not even going to make an impact. So then I don't even bother. Instead of thinking, well, what can I contribute, right? So there are so many ways that we can work with God in evangelism. We can all participate in the work of evangelism. And just to emphasize again, we need to participate. When we have conviction and compassion, it carries us through the self-doubt, the fear, the wrong understandings, and it pushes us to continue forward. Even in verse 37 through 39, when he talks about if we love other relationships more than him, we're not worthy of him. You know, we, we remember that God is serious and passionate, that evangelism as a work is vital for us to participate in. The more we think about those things, the more we seek out ways that we can work with God in evangelism. So, uh, first thing that's not on the board is I want to uh, talk about that idea of sharing more than you know. We're going to try to expand on some of these applications more in lessons in the future. Um, but there's lots of different passages that emphasize principles of evangelism. Mark 5. Do you remember the legion demoniac? Uh, Jesus healed a man possessed by thousands of demons. And when the man was healed, Jesus told him to go. Tell everyone what great things God has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Look, that man was just possessed by demons. So what he knew, I mean, he hadn't even like heard sermons, it seems, yet at all. But he knew that Jesus had had mercy on him. Good enough. Later in Mark, the entire village that he was from, thousands of people came to Jesus later because of what he had done. You think about the disciples here. Verse 6, preach saying the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, how much did they understand? You know, they, they, they thought the kingdom was like an earthly thing at this point. And they clearly were still struggling. You see later in the text in Matthew, they're still struggling with really fundamental things about Jesus' identity. Well, they knew enough to go share what they knew, right? We do know enough. If we've been saved by the blood of Jesus, there's so much we do know that's worth sharing, right? So don't focus on what you don't know. Focus on the beauty and the glory of what you do know. And again, God will use that. Um, another thing related to that that I don't have on the board is thinking that we have to um, argue philosophy or science in order to participate in evangelism. And again, share what you know. Don't think you've got to be like a master scientist and argue with the best of them, you know? Share what you know. The right people that God is seeking, the right people, the heart condition that God is seeking, they will be drawn to God by the sincerity of his true disciples speaking about those things, right? So praying about the work and for the workers. Um, that's the first one that I have on the board here. You know how valuable that is? Uh, in Mark chapter 9, or Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said, pray for laborers, right? So you have to think like, even if you can't participate in maybe going out and having a Bible study, or going to a Bible study, maybe you feel very limited in even who you can even talk to because you know, like Mr. Bill or Miss Betty, maybe you're, you're physically incapable of doing as much as maybe somebody else, right? Prayer is the most important work of evangelism. Passionate, fervent prayer. God listens to those prayers. Jesus didn't say, pray about this, 
because it's meaningless to pray about it. And I can easily think like, well, God's going to do what he's going to do no matter what. You know, so if I just pray about this, I mean, God already wants to do that. No, he wants us to participate in prayer because those prayers matter. And pray for the workers. If you know somebody is working in evangelism, ask them about that. Encourage them in that. Go to uh, verse 42. Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Evangelism can be so discouraging. It can be so discouraging. And if you know that, even some small act of kindness done because of that awareness, it matters. And like contributing to the needs of the saints. Cup of cold water, who cares, right? Like you drink it, it's gone, it's over. But what Jesus says is, that matters to God. And to people who are weary and worn out, that matters a lot more than the cup of cold water, right? Inviting people to a Bible study or assembly. In John chapter 1, the initial disciples of Jesus, (laughs) think about everything that happened because the initial disciples said, come and see. That's it. I mean, what did they know? They know they had found Jesus. So they invited people to come and see Jesus. There is so much power in an invitation. Some people are so good at evangelism because they passionately invite everybody they can. They see someone at the grocery store, they invite them. They talk to a cashier, they invite them. They invite their family, they invite their friends, and they invite over and over and over again. They keep extending the invitation. Inviting to a Bible study or assembly is so easy. And I find that if you're worried about somebody getting angry at you or like hurting you in some way, people tend to be pretty friendly about invitations, even if they say no. Like I've gone to tables uh, before at coffee shops, giving somebody an invitation and like my number, and um, uh, how to say it, people who obviously by appearance were making decisions that were opposite to the gospel, you know, you could think like, okay, this could go really bad. And they just give the card back and they say, no, thank you, right? So, I mean, like the worst oftentimes it can possibly be is somebody just politely says no. Giving verbal glory and thanks to God. You know, I think that there's, it's so easy to take for granted how much it impacts people that somebody loves God enough where they will actually use his name in conversation. Like somebody asks how you're doing and you say, you know, God is just very good. And I mean, that may not all of a sudden make them say like, wow, can I study the Bible with you? I want to be saved, right? So it may not seem to cause an immediate response, but in evangelism, you have to realize so much of what we're doing in evangelism is we're just putting God out there to people and planting seeds or or watering seeds. And I find that when somebody sees that somebody is actually serious about their faith and love for God, when they have an interest, they're going to talk to the person who's serious about it, not the person who just goes to church and then they just live their life, right? Give verbal glory to God. When you say you're going to do something in the future, say, Lord willing, you know, we'll do this or that. And don't think it's like, well, if you don't say it, you know, you're sinning, but you're, you're putting God's name out there. You're just wanting people to be aware that you love God and that you, you love giving thanks to God. They see awe of God in your life. Ask people what you can be praying for in their life. Ask people what to pray for, and, and, and if you are praying for them, don't be dishonest, but honestly tell them, like, hey, I've been, I've been praying for that. You know, how are you doing, right? And finally, I think simply consider the people you see most often, right? 
And think about how you can utilize those interactions for God's glory and to exalt Jesus' name. Because evangelism, if you're to, I think, summarize it very simply, what we're trying to do in evangelism is raise the name of Jesus higher. We're just trying through our words, through our behavior, we're trying to exalt Jesus into the position he belongs in, in everybody's life, right? So the people you see the most often, even again, if it's just a cashier at a grocery store, that is an opportunity. Somebody you see every day at a park or somewhere you go routinely, that is an opportunity to speak about Jesus' glory. Look for those opportunities and consider the people you see the most often. Ultimately, the work of evangelism, when we allow it to be as broad as we see it in Scripture, it's not that evangelism is we baptize people, we study the Bible with people. Those are essential qualities of what we're hoping God can do in people's lives, but we simply need to raise the name of Jesus into its highest possible position. I want to finish in verse 32 and 33 again. Here's where we'll end the lesson. When Jesus talks about confession, we can easily think about confession as just something we do before we're baptized. But confession is something we do every day. Silence is not an option. Either we are confessing Jesus in the world or we're denying him through our silence. And so what will you do? If there's anyone this morning who's here who has any needs that need to be brought before the saints, any prayers of encouragement, or if you wish to obey the gospel, we have water right behind me, and we can baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins this morning, if you'll so choose to do so. Let's uh, stand and sing.